going live in five, four, three, two, one. Hey everybody, this is Tanika Stotts, a queer little tumbleweed out in Los Angeles, California. I just want to start out by saying happy birthday, Kickstarter. What a wild 10 years it has been. From Kickstarter, this is just the beginning. In this episode, Reconstructing the Past. I'm Zakia Gibbons. I'm Nick Yulman. And yes, Kickstarter is 10 years old this week. And we have some friends helping us celebrate. We're the Feather Theory and we love Kickstarter. Because it allows us to be us and to do what we do best. Bring people together, make art, and have fun. Aww, the feeling is mutual. (laughs) (laughs) It's been 10 years, more than 160,000 creative projects made possible by over 16 million backers and creators. And some of those creators sent us messages sharing personal moments from Kickstarter's first decade. We'll hear more of those later on. First, we have a couple of stories about the things we discover when we take a look back two creators who obsessively researched lost moments from history and kind of found ways to bring them back to life. For our first story, we're going to bring in Jessica Massart, who works with theater and dance projects here at Kickstarter. Hey, Jessica. Hey, Nick. So you're going to tell us a story of one of your favorite projects from these categories. Yes. Say Something Bunny from Allison S.M. Kobayashi. It's this amazing piece of theater, and it's all looking at the life of this one family. The show's incredibly successful. It's gotten great reviews. It's been nominated for awards, and it's been running sold-out performances for over two years now which you almost never see in the experimental theater scene. But there's another reaction that Allison gets a lot. People see this and they're like, why would you do this? And having seen the show, that's a pretty fair question. Its inspiration came from an unlikely place. It's based on a found audio recording made on a wire recorder, which is like a vintage, almost extinct recording device that was around in like the 40s and 50s. The recording is of this family in Long Island, a Jewish family in the 50s. They're pretty middle class, and the son of the family had a wire recorder. He's like pulling it out and just going around the room and being like, you talk. Now we will interview Miss Bunny Tannenbaum. Say something, Bunny. Please say something. Some moments he's like secretly recording people, and it's like, that's really funny. It's really hard to hear. Yeah, it's kind of like a theatrical form of time travel um, using this mundane and simple recording that through Allison's research is revealed as a remarkable moment in a family whose lives are about to change. That's Christopher Allen, Allison's husband and her collaborator on Say Something Bunny. He's the founder and director of Union Docs, an art center in Brooklyn that's focused on new approaches to making documentary work. And Allison's work is an interesting twist on traditional documentaries. She often uses found objects, letters, or recordings from strangers' lives that she tries to understand and put into a new context. I used to go to thrift stores and collect answering machines that people would leave the tapes inside. One of my first pieces was just taking that cassette tape, listening to it, and realized it was this kind of accidental portrait of this guy, Dan Carter, and so ended up performing all of the characters that left messages. 
Hello, I can't come to the phone right now. Please leave your name, telephone number, and the time you called, and I will return your call as soon as I can. Didier. So I was really interested in always looking at found objects, things that were discarded, and then translating those into more of a creative practice. And so because I had been making work out of found objects, people would just give me stuff. And that was the case with Say Something Binding with this recording. So I first listened to it, and in the first, like, three minutes, I, like, fell in love with the family, and I just... It just made me laugh. Mr. Sadley, my English teacher, uh, came into the study hall one day and uh, he said somebody took uh, the screws out of the 7-Up machine and he said anybody who's that hard up for a screw was pretty sad. (laughs) The family's obviously having so much fun that every time I listened to it, it would just make me have fun and it brought me joy. Patsy, did you burp? Play something on the piano, David, and I'll whistle into this canary. I just knew it was special, but I wasn't sure what it was because the entire recording's 45 minutes, and a lot of it is just on first listening. You don't even know what they're saying. It, everything's so garbled, and so I know there's something here. I don't know what that is, but I'm going to try and listen to it as much as possible to get to a point where I can understand it. I think that I also liked that it was very ordinary. The attraction for me wasn't just that it was funny and that it was dynamic, but that it also was incredibly mundane. Listen, what? Did we have today in the cabinet men? With the kitchen stuff, we won't have for a week. The answers weren't present in the recording because you never refer to your family with their full last name. So there were all these kind of mysteries where I was like, it's asking me to solve this. And so without having many clues, and without knowing what the project would become, Allison set out to solve this mystery, to find out as much about these recordings and the people in them as possible. I never researched a project on this level. There's two recordings, one's earlier 50s, one's mid 50s. They're a couple years apart, so it's funny, the kids kind of like their voices change a little bit, and even how people relate to each other as well. The family's experience was so different from mine. The period of time that they lived in was so different from when I grew up, which was like the 90s and the 80s. The whole process was really just trying to like find a way to put myself in that room and like have the same context as the family so that I could understand their conversations in a different way. I really wanted to be a relative who was like inserting myself into this family gathering. Part of training herself to hear the conversations differently was understanding all the cultural references the family makes. They sing songs, talk about Broadway shows, and crack jokes that are really specific to their time and place. So, for example, there's an old radio show called Our Miss Brooks that pops up in the recording. It's actually something that someone had recorded on the wire previously, the way people record TV shows on DVRs now. And because wire recorders were these really finicky machines, it bleeds through in certain spots, interrupting the rest of the recording. Allison became obsessed with finding the script for this specific episode, but she only had one line to go off of. It's hotter in here now than it was before. It's hotter in here now than it was before. (laughs) And also an ad from the broadcast for a contest. To the teacher who's considered most beautiful by our judges, will be awarded a week's trip to Hollywood with all expenses paid. And funnily enough, the opportunity to do this research arose on a no expenses paid trip that she and Christopher were taking to California. It was like 
the holidays. You're going to a friend's wedding in Palm Springs. For years, I knew that these scripts were in the UCLA archives, but like, I don't go to LA very often. And I was like, it's our vacation, but like Christopher, we have to spend one to two days in this library. You could only request five boxes a day or something. And there were like 20 boxes of the script and we only had two days there, but found it. And this archive at UCLA was just one of the many places Allison went to uncover clues about these recordings. I mean, Library of Congress, one of the funny things is like there was some like adult content that comes up, which I also had to go to like public libraries to view. So like, I need to watch this erotica film. And I thought they'd put me in a booth or something, but it was just like in front of people. People were walking by and I was like, it's research, it's research. She wound up doing this research on and off for six years. That's how long someone might spend writing a dissertation about an important historical document or work of literature. She was just focused on something that no one else cared about. We've had a lot of historians and librarians and people involved in conservation come to the show and find like a lot of connections to their discipline. But Allison's also speculating. She uses her imagination a lot to project into the characters, the protagonist's lives. She found out a lot about their lives and shared some pretty remarkable discoveries in the show. We won't spoil any of them. And even the show's structure itself is inspired by what she'd learned about the life of the main character, David, the person who made these recordings. We found out that later he wrote plays, he was a playwright. And so being in conversation of like, how should this performance play out in front of people? We were really like, well, he would have had this experience of writing a play and then bringing people together for the first time to read it. And so that's where this format of the cold read came from. The audience members are invited into the room and there's a big circular table and then some additional seats around that. And they're invited to take a seat at the table. And in doing so, they're casting themselves as one of the characters in this recording. So they don't have to say anything out loud. They don't have to perform. They're just kind of placeholders for these characters. And in the performance, I talk to them directly and give them their character motivations. Okay, next we have June Tenenbaum, 46 years old. David, are you coming to visit me when I get to Philadelphia? You're a neighbor, and you're also the mother of Bunny Tenenbaum. You're married to Sydney, 50. You're pretty quiet. (laughs) You don't say much. And I think that's rubbed off on your daughter, Bunny, 20 years old. I'm a new. It's almost as if they're an actor preparing for a character that they're going to play in a future performance. And this is our first time kind of really getting into the material and I as the director am trying to give them context. It's a unique performance because there is very much a social aspect. Even though the audience doesn't have to do anything, their presence is felt and the vibe of the audience is a huge part of each performance. And so Allison is also a little bit of a magician kind of amplifying and kind of working with that sort of social space that's created when everyone sits around this circular table. Okay, now let's go on to scene two. You're all sitting around the dining room table after dinner, having a coffee, maybe a cocktail. It totally changes the performance depending on the audience's energy. Like we had this all boys college come a couple (laughs) weeks ago and I was like not sure what to expect and they were amazing and it was so much fun and like I learned how to do certain parts differently in that performance because I was getting so much from them. The audience doesn't actually speak. They just read along as Allison explains her research and talks about these characters. But there is something about everyone sitting at this round table, focusing their energy in this strange ritual that feels a bit like a seance. Most of the people in this recording have passed away. 
in listening to their voices and having people kind of embody them temporarily, they really do come to life, which I think is so specific to the space of performance. I don't think that would feel at all the same way if it was a film or a documentary. I think that the format really creates that sense of life in something that could have been just kind of tossed away. This question of whose stories get preserved or tossed away is at the heart of Allison's work. When people ask her, why would you do this? It's one of the things she talks about. Stuff that's made by people who aren't like the winners of history. I think that those stories are very important to preserve. The main character, David, he didn't have any children or a partner. And it seemed very apparent to me in this process that he was someone who is very ambitious and productive. Like he just created so much stuff and so obviously wanted to be remembered. That. I'm just like, I mean, I think I'm just like thinking about this now, but just like, I think in learning more about him, I was really like, no one else is going to do this. You know, he passed away before I could get his permission. This just came to me by chance. And it just really felt like an invitation to be like, look at someone who no one else is looking at. He's just such a character. I would have loved to meet him and like every time I met someone who had met him like they would have amazing stories. I mean I wish that he was still alive. I think I feel like if he was alive he'd come to the show every night. Later we discovered that one family member was alive and um, before bringing it to New York we did uh, meet that family member and um, ask them for permission to use the recording, which they generously granted. I think especially understanding Allison's intentions and the degree of research that she'd put into it. The time is approximately 8 o'clock p.m. and the wire recorder, where is that? Why is this scene being recorded? There's speculation in the show as to exactly why he's doing it, which I feel like you should come to the show to see. But I think it's just, I mean, in making this piece, I was re-watching my own home videos and I was like, it's such a common impulse to just see a constellation of people that you care about together and wanting to capture that because it's a fleeting moment. Or also just like the novelty of having this like recording device and also wanting to show it off is like a big part of that too. It's kind of like if anyone gets like a new iPhone at like a family function, you're like, ooh, let's check out this new slow-mo or something. Recording can sometimes be this like communal event. There's a moment in the performance too where there's some home videos that are from Allison's family. We brought that in and I think it was because we wanted to extend out this um, sense of recorded life. My aunt and my mom came to New York. They had both seen it before, but they saw it for the second time and my aunt was really front and center. There's this moment in the performance we, where we have a video where you see my uncle who passed away in 2014, I think. And I knew that that was behind me and I saw her seeing it and it was really intense. Like I almost was crying during the performance. It's funny how like you're used to performing this thing, you've done it 200 times and then you have this one person in the audience that it feels significant to in a different way and you just like feel the difference and the impact of that person seeing you say these things. To learn more about Allison S.M. Kobayashi's theater piece, Say Something Bunny, and to find out about upcoming shows, head to saysomethingbunny.com. 
And so, Jessica, you're also doing sort of a special initiative around performance right now. That's right. It's called Performance in Progress. Throughout the month of May, we're highlighting performance projects on Kickstarter. Without giving too much away, there are fascinating projects that are really tapping into what's happening in the world right now. If folks want to find out more, just head to kickstarter.com performance dash in dash progress. With Say Something Bunny, Allison was on a mission to find out as much as possible about this family whose old home recordings she discovered. Our next story about reconstructing the past also features an artist going on a creative journey to learn more about a family's lost history. In this case, his own. Here's producer Michael Garofalo. Usually, when an artist dedicates a work to someone, it's a person they know. But Roger Peltzman, a pianist in New York City, dedicated his 2014 album of Chopin piano works to someone he had never met. When I was growing up, there were photos around the house. There was a handsome young man in a circular little frame. And my mother used to compare him to my oldest brother, who was a talented pianist. The handsome young man in that photo was Roger's uncle, Norbert Stern. He was 22 years old and just starting a promising career as a concert pianist in Brussels, Belgium, when he was killed in Auschwitz along with Roger's grandparents in 1944. Roger's album, which he calls Dedication, grew out of a few things. Years of research into his family's history, a surprising discovery about his mother's past, and something else that's kind of hard to name. We could call it chance, luck, or maybe even fate. I give recitals every few years. And I was getting a little stale. I wanted to do something different. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll make a CD like everybody else. And I just went online one night to look for recording studios. And I guess my fantasy was, hey, maybe I'll go to Abbey Road or something. But somehow I got onto some obscure blog of European recording engineers. And some guy says, why don't you come to Brussels, where I make fantastic recordings at the Brussels Conservatory? I thought, oh my God, this is it. This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. My uncle Norbert, in Brussels, he was at the conservatory from a very early age. And he was one of the star pupils, if not the star pupil there. The rumor was that he won a competition when he was a freshman and then it created a kind of a scandal because freshmen aren't supposed to win. It's bad form. So my mother said that they took it away from him. And I never quite knew if that was true or not. And then I just found a piece of paper where he is placed first. And then they put a pencil mark through it and make him second. So there was the proof. Pretty early on, my mother probably too early told me what happened to her family, which is they all were killed in Auschwitz. But it kind of changes everything when you know something like that as a child. There are people who, they're, they're ghosts who are lurking behind in the back of your mind somehow, these people. And the thing about my uncle is I came to piano very late in life. In college, I got serious, which is kind of ridiculous for that kind of world. I started thinking, oh, if I could only talk to him, if I could only ask him advice. And I really began to somehow picture this young guy when I would sit at the piano. And I needed to know more about him, so I started doing research and writing away. 
Roger started piecing together his uncle's story bit by bit through official documents, deportation orders, his family's fake IDs, as well as newspaper reviews of Norbert's recitals. But in 2010, he would get closer than he could have ever hoped. And it was through a detail in a story that he already knew very, very well, a story he had heard countless times growing up, the story of how his mother escaped the Nazis. Her family had been successfully hiding in an attic in Brussels for two years. And then one day in the middle of the night, the Gestapo came. Well, that was the 9th of January. And my mother, she knew that the bathroom window went onto the roof. And I put a coat on, started running away. My mother says, where are you going? And I said, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to let them take me like a sheep. And she heads out the window. My brother went into a, there was another attic higher up. But they went after him and they got him. My mother hides out all night on a snowy roof. We don't know exactly how, but she did get in touch with the underground. And the underground army got me into a convent disguised as a nun. I have a picture here of what I looked like when I was a nun. I was 16 at this point. So my mother tells us this story, and she would tell it to whoever would listen. So I thought, and my brothers thought, we knew everything about her. But then one year after my mother died, I got a phone call out of the blue from an old woman in Brussels. It turned out that this woman, whose name is Mrs. Hennessy, had known Roger's mother and his uncle Norbert. They had met because of the piano in her home. When they were in hiding, he couldn't resist music and he would leave armed with his fake ID to either do two things. One would be to go to a concert or to practice on a piano, which this woman who called me had. So Norbert made friends with Mrs. Hennessy, and Beatrice, my mother, actually became friends with her too. I wanted to desperately play the piano that he practiced on. I mean, it was just... Not the Holy Grail, which would be a recording, it's a close second. So I made it a priority that the second the summer came, I would rush to Belgium to see her. And at her house, she had the same photo that I had of my mother in a nun's habit on her piano, like I had on my piano, which she said her father took that photo. So all my life, I've seen this photo of my mother as a nun, never knowing who took it, and then in 2010, I find out the whole story. Mrs. Hennessy's father had been a member of the underground, and he was one of the people who hid Roger's mother in the convent after her rooftop escape from the Gestapo. And now, here Roger was, in Mrs. Hennessy's house, seated at the Steinway that was most likely the last piano his uncle Norbert ever played. Just the idea that his fingertips touched these actual keys, and now I was gonna touch them, I felt like, okay, this is great, this is a connection. I brought with me, just to make sure that I didn't screw up uh, sheet music for the Chopin Pursuits, which is a lullaby, I played it for Mrs. Hennessy and her daughter and my wife, and I tried to play as beautifully as possible. I think in the back of my mind, I didn't want to uh, disappoint Mrs. Hennessy. And when they left the room to go back to where we were having lunch, I kissed the piano goodbye. 
something changed that day after I played it. It made me either more confident or it made me closer to him, but it, it helped my playing somehow. Just a little seed that's been growing ever since. That little seed would eventually grow into Roger's dedication project. And this brings us back to where we started, with Roger on the internet late at night, connecting with an engineer who records at the Brussels Conservatory, where Norbert was a student. Like a lightning bolt, I thought, record it there. That's where Norbert won his competitions. You're going to play all Chopin, and you're going to dedicate it to him. Chopin was Norbert's forte. He was known as uh, a Chopin pianist. Not everyone is a Chopin pianist. It's hard to define, but you'll know it when you hear it. Because some people play Chopin, and it doesn't sound good. (laughs) And some people do, and it sounds very good. It's a certain sort of personality you have that means you can pull it off. This joie de vivre, this nobleness, this uh, lilt, and that's a Chopin pianist. And I'd like to think that I'm sort of a Chopin pianist. I don't butcher it. The hall was the best hall I ever played in, and uh, that includes Weill Hall, Carnegie Hall. And I also, I would look into the audience and know that my grandparents and my mother were sitting there listening to him. And here I was, 60 years later, in the same exact position, same exact hall. And the hall had some kind of eerie spirit. I am not a California kind of person. You know, I'm not new agey. None of my friends would ever say that about me. I'm a a complete New Yorker. But I sent something, and... uh, and it helped me. The second nocturne, Opus 27, number two, when I heard the first playback of that piece, I I liked it, which is uncommon. I don't like anything I hear of myself. But I thought, this isn't bad, which is uh, good. And at a certain point, I heard something that was really, really beautiful, but I didn't feel like it was me. It's hard to describe. It felt like somebody else playing. I never had that feeling before or since. It was very odd. And it occurred to me that it was maybe my uncle. And I didn't tell anybody this crazy story. I might have told my wife, and that was it. And I take lessons with this teacher. And he was listening to the playback. And at the same exact spot, he looked at me and said, that doesn't sound like you. That sounds like Norbert. And the fact that he looked up to me and said that, I knew I wasn't completely out of my mind. After the album was finished, Roger returned to Belgium to give a concert at another site that was significant in his family's story, the museum at the Mechelen deportation camp where his grandparents and uncle were sent after their arrest, their last stop before Auschwitz. Behind me on the wall, were, they have all the pictures of the people who were sent, including my grandparents and my uncle. And I gave a concert, all the Chopin from the album, and it was only maybe 50 yards from the railroad tracks where they were sent to their deaths. All these 
experiences have really changed me, only for good. And I become a better musician and a better human being from it. And I've sort of reclaimed my family, which is important to me. It's not important to everybody, but it's important to me. I mean, I used to refer to my uncle as my mother's brother, or my grandparents as my mother's parents. There was no connection between us. But because of Norbert, in wanting to get so close to him and doing all this research where I've touched these things, where I've played the piano, where I've gone to where they were killed, where they were deported. They've now become my grandfather, my grandmother, and my uncle. I mean, I really love these people. And every day I think about Norbert. Every time I put my fingers on a keyboard, I think of him. And I think, what does he think about this? You know. And sometimes I feel like he said to me, hey, dummy, that's not how you do it. Or, oh, yeah, this is it, yeah. recordings from Roger Peltzman's dedication project on his website, rogerpeltzman.com. And his research on his uncle Norbert has continued, most recently resulting in a memorial plaque being placed outside the house in Brussels where the Stern family hid. So as we mentioned, it's Kickstarter's 10th birthday. Three cheers for Kickstarter! Hip hip, hip, hip hooray! Hip hip hooray! That's choreographer Raja Feather Kelly and his group The Feather Theory. And to celebrate, we've asked a bunch of other creators who have brought ideas to life through Kickstarter to share some memories. Snapshots from different points in their creative journeys. I suppose there was moments where I was just sort of sat with my hands covered in glue, freezing cold thinking, what am I doing? Why did I want to make the world's largest paper mache sculpture? I've done three different Kickstarter campaigns. Most recently, the Four Freedoms 50 State Initiative. The overly ambitious 52 simultaneous campaigns. Pussypedia started because I realized I didn't know anything about my vagina and I had this idea. We applied for grants, we tried to get sponsored. Everybody was just sort of like, oh, I love this, but we can't. I kept hearing and reading amazing ideas and scripts that would stay forever on the paper because it was different, just too far from the norm. Indie comics can often struggle to find support from traditional media. And I was just fascinated by the idea that you could come to the community and create a product together. It was more than just a queer comics anthology about science fiction and fantasy. For us, it was reality. I knew we'd have to fight, but we wanted to fund. Two years ago, I warned my boyfriend that I met recently about the dramatic effect of a 30 days campaign on our relationship. And we are still together. We threw parties, we had game shows. Yeah. The last Kickstarter we did, we did it in 24 hours. Wow. I'll never forget the moment we made our goal. I just started weeping. 
for Mystery Science Theater 3000. The show hadn't been on in almost 20 years. It allowed us to have creative freedom to make the shows exactly the way we wanted. I didn't realize just how odd it would feel to take 600 photos of myself and then mail them to people I've never met. In a matter of months, became a physical book that no publisher could tell us wasn't marketable or didn't have a place on shelves. We've come quite a long way. Oprah selected Lumos to be on her list of favorite things last year. We were on the cover of Time magazine for their list of best inventions. We turned to our community of 3,000 plus backers and we found our CTO and our designer. Not only were they talented people for the jobs, in fact they backed our projects, but they were passionate about what we were building as well. It was great to have people sending me messages of support. That was quite different to the way that I normally work, stuck away in the studio. We were able to raise enough money to put on an original show at Carnegie Hall. It was the best night of our lives. The backers, they were keeping me going and like rooting for me. And I'm still shocked that I managed to pull it off, if I'm completely honest with you. Having gone through a Kickstarter campaign gave me a new level of confidence in doing anything. They really helped my dreams come true. The night it closed, which was July 4th, Hank and I stayed on the phone deep into the middle of the night with the realization that, oh no, now that we've raised this money, we've actually got to do this project. And it set the bar high for what ended up being the largest creative collaboration in United States history. For about three and a half years, I held the record for the most funded Kickstarter in film and television. Recently, Critical Role beat the Mystery Science Theater record, but they're so gracious, they invited me to their closing event. And I gave them the World Championship belt for raising the most in film and television. I don't know if there's another platform that allows so many different people from various parts of the world to show their love for an idea, but also give it a launching pad. I've probably donated to at least 50 Kickstarter campaigns, so I've drank the Kool-Aid. Even to this day, I think back to that very first launch and how I thought, it's gonna be okay. And well, here I am, about to launch another one. Thanks to everyone who sent us a message. Find a list of all the creators we heard from and links to all of their amazing projects in our show notes at podcast.kickstarter.com. And of course, creators can do all the things we just heard about because of backers, people who hear about an idea that really should exist and step up to make it happen. And we want to wrap up this episode and the season with a story that reminds us that sometimes backing a project can have a deeper impact than we realize. I remember introducing Kickstarter to my dad. I, um, I saw the light phone. It was a minimalistic phone that was supposed to help you live in the moment, something I felt that my parents could use. There were no bells and whistles for them to get confused with. And so I, I gave him the link, and that was the last I spoke to my dad about Kickstarter. Uh, unbeknownst to me, he started to fund quite a few projects. After my dad died, uh, sorting through his affairs, I found a number of Kickstarter projects that he had backed. Sure enough, the, the light phone came through, 
and it made me both smile and cry. When you lose someone you love, you scavenge around for things that remind you of them. Belongings, writing, pictures. The slow trickle of Kickstarter products were like a crutch. It helped me to bear the weight of reality. These were things that when he was alive, he saw promise in. Something he found interesting or exciting. And so when they came through to me, I felt like I saw the world through his eyes. I began to see these products as almost gifts from the grave. The last project to be fulfilled was, <laughs> was the one that really knocked me off my feet. In those first hard few months after he passed, I would find comfort in looking up at the moon. I began to associate the moon with my father as a beautiful but silent presence. It forever watched over me, so you can somewhat imagine how I felt when I discovered that he backed a moon watch, <laughs> the Bavaro Luna series. The watch has a little mini moon on it, something that I, I could wear on my wrist and, and, and always look to. The watch itself was a perfect last gift, a nice reminder that time is very much limited. You can never know when your time is up. And so you should be spending the time doing the things that you love with the people whose company that you cherish. As for the memories of my dad, that the Kickstarter projects rekindled every time one would come through, made me realize that I'm reminded of my father because I am myself a reminder of the man that he was. It just took a while and a, a few Kickstarter projects to realize something that I, I already knew. That was Peter Hicks, remembering his father, Ray Hicks. So Zakia, there's one more thing we need to talk about, and that is um, that this is your last episode with us. You're going to be moving on from Kickstarter, um, and I want to say, first of all, having your, your literal voice and your creative <laughs> voice in the mix has just been amazing. And I mean, you've shaped this podcast from the start, but I know you're about to go off and do a lot of other really cool stuff, so can you tell us about it? Yeah, I am unfortunately no longer going to be here at Kickstarter because I am now a producer for a WNYC podcast called Nancy. It's a queer storytelling podcast, so I'm really excited to continue to tell stories that really matter. It is very bittersweet. I've had the best time working on this podcast with you and to be able to tell the stories of brave and creative people. It really did inspire me to get back on the horse and work on my own creative project. It's yes. an experimental. <laughs> I've been talking to Nick about it, but like I'm also like very secretive, but I'm inspired to be more forthright about it. <laughs> I'm working on an experimental fictional podcast that is very zany and fun and important. And, you know, who knows? Maybe I'll come to Kickstarter to raise funds for it. Maybe we could even feature it on this podcast if you did. Maybe. That would be <laughs> dope. Um, but yeah, no, for real, it's been really awe-inspiring and special and fun. Thank you for giving me the space to tell the stories that I like to tell. You have such a great ear for stories and a great ear for storytellers whose voices we don't always hear. And like, it's had a huge impact on what we've done. And 
thank you so much for doing it. I appreciate that. Thank you. And thank you to all y'all who have been listening. And so in addition to making some other great audio stories, I know you've been working on another really important project and something that can have a really big impact in this industry. Yeah. So obviously I'm in the audio industry as a producer, now host. (laughs) Thanks for giving me this opportunity. Um, (laughs) The pleasure has been all ours. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, the audio industry isn't very diverse racially and in other ways. So some other people of color and I have been working together for the past several months to make a directory of all people of color working in audio so that we can form community amongst each other and so that job hunters and managers can easily find very talented people of color in the industry. So if there's anybody listening who is thinking of starting their own podcast and they really want to make sure that they're finding this diverse, awesome talent pool that you're helping to bring together, where would they find that? Yeah, we're working on launching a website for the directory. So it'll be available at pocandaudio.com in the coming weeks. And if you are a person of color working in audio, if you're an engineer, if you're a host, if you're an aspiring podcaster, you can join the directory. And if you're looking to hire diverse talent, you can go to the directory and check it out and see who's out there. It is really, really cool that you're doing that. Thank you. Well, should we uh, hit the credits now? I guess we should. All right. How does it go again? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, We'll just use the ones from last week. It'll be fine. Thanks for joining us for this very special episode of Just the Beginning, the last of the season. The show is produced by me, Zakia Gibbons, <laughs> Michael Garofalo, and Nick Yolman. Elise Malouk is Kickstarter's editorial director. Our theme music is by Balloon. We heard additional music in this episode from Ensemble et al. and Frank Locrasto. And if you want to see some of the other ways that we're celebrating our 10th birthday, head to kickstarter.com 10. You can read stories about some of our favorite projects from the last 10 years, and even take a quiz that'll match you with a live project we think you'll love. All right, we're off to eat some birthday cake. I'm Nick Yulman. I'm Zakia Gibbons, and this is Just the Beginning. <laughs> <laughs>